you and I have a, a long relationship with many uh, sort of places where it's intertwined, and and you know Kevin as well. Which is uh, we welcome, welcome Dan. Yeah, Explain. welcome. Yeah, welcome Dan yeah, to the exactly show. What I was going to say, nice, welcome nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's. It, I don't know how you snuck your way onto the show, but you're here now. You you typically would. Uh, we would we would only invite people who are currently running a company, uh, which is venture backed. You're. Your uh, my understanding, Dan, is that you ran managed by Q. Of course, uh, it's known that you sold it to WeWork, and that it, I believe, later was sold again. And we can get into what the details of that are. And now you run a uh, one of those venture capital funds that is weirdly named because it, in back in the day you could just name venture capital funds anything you wanted, and it would turn out totally fine. I was in 2023. I'm not sure if that's the case anymore. And that's gutter capital, <laughs> if I understand correctly. Uh, Are you making fun of his his name of his VC? No, no. It, we have a relationship. I feel where we can talk about things in an open way, and <laughs> and he named it like that on purpose. Uh, and so, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Uh, my pleasure. Nice to see you both. Yeah, um, I it, I haven't seen either of your faces. I think in a long time. So. Nice yeah. to nice to reconnect. We've got we've both got old, all got mm -hmm. long history. So pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, Dan. And the reason that we wanted to have him on it was just because we we both know Dan, and we kind of I think all three of us went through like the Uber of uh, era, um, <laughs> and and have uh, some. Um, and this show is all about like helping like first time founders mostly uh, with some of our experience. Um, so let's. Try not to go into 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 the your the VC side of the world. Try to try to forget mm -hmm. all the VC isms that that you've learned. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that is kind of why we wanted to bring you on. Um, you went through probably uh, a ton of experience with managed by Q. I remember, like, I don't know, I don't know, uh, Julian, if you want to kind of give the 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 synopsis on the era that we all went through. Or yeah, not. I mean, I'll give my perspective on the New York era of which was the era of uh, Uber of. This was the New York version of that. And often Breather was considered a New York company, even though it wasn't, right? It had a big New York office. And so what you had is like five or six laundry startups that were one hour laundry companies. And you had Breather, which was the only really kind of on-demand-y uh, office space. But there were many other co-working spaces, like, like I want to say 10 of them that all came out kind of chasing WeWork money. And you had, uh, I felt like every month or something, or every couple months, there was a new Uber competitor that was launching in New York that had raised a hundred million dollars and right at launch. And so it was just the wildest of wild times. And Dan and I shared a common investor, which is RE at the seed or series A. Uh, Dan, I, I gave my little perspective. I was only in New York part of the time at that, uh, during that era. What, what happened as far as you're concerned? Yeah. I mean, I think you got it mostly right. Um, you know, I think it was sort of an era where there was a lot of optimism. I think, um, you know, I think it was a speech or a talk that Travis gave at the web about sort of the, the using bits to move atoms. And I, I think yes. it was really spurred a lot of uh enthusiasm and excitement and 
you know, rightfully or wrongfully in sort of the potential of software and sort of, it was the advent of, you know, everyone having the internet in their hand, um, and really like unlocking sort of a new, a new era of logistics. I think, um, people suspended disbelief about, you know, the unit economics of those businesses and, and maybe, uh, didn't pay enough attention to sort of like how traditional models and the economics of them and, and the exit multiples of those businesses actually, uh, functioned. And I think, you know, it's been what, 10, 15 years since then. And, um, you know, the world has come back down to earth for a number of reasons, but yeah, I think you've, you've captured it pretty well, Julian. Yeah. And, uh, of those, so the ones that I remember, um, so we had, um, so managed by Q was an office cleaning service and there was also a home, uh, cleaning service. What was the name of that company again? Handy. YC company. Hand, handy. Are they and, still around? Boy. Yeah, enjoy. I think, I think in the in defense of managed by Q, like one of the things that we had going for us that was a little bit you know more advantageous was this wasn't like an on demand situation. You had you know a totally re recurring schedule. Totally, was, you know, part of the insight was cleaning was the wedge into a broader set of services. So we also it was like a a, a full marketplace for commercial services. So cleaning, maintenance, right. IT, security, staffing. Um, and the idea was that cleaning alone was not going to be a very interesting business, but it would be a wedge into to the wedge into categories. everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think, I think the commonality between all of these businesses was, it was really like the moving, the, 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 the bits and atoms coming together. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean to, to me, mean on demand. I think most companies, including myself at ship, we, we moved away from the on demand model. Um, mm -hmm. to a more scheduled, um, but it really was like real estate uh, had, had, had their, their, swim, what is the yeah, cleaning companies, uh, storage companies, there was Omni, um, sure. there Clutter. was uh, Clutter. Clutter. Yeah. Clutter is more like peer to peer. There was the green one. What was the green one, Dan? There was a whole bunch of them. Uh, make space. There we go. Yeah. Make space. Make space. Mm -hmm. And I think the only, and then, and then the ones that survived, um, were, are Uber and, uh, DoorDash and the food delivery companies. Are those the only two categories that well, really survived? Andy got bought by Angie and now it's part of, you know, it's sort of like part of the, um, uh, IAC is like, uh, home services play. And I think Ocean was CEO there for a while. Um, I think Makespace still exists. Um. I think but we, truly, what 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 it means being successful? I mean, like having like venture like outcomes. Yeah, independent. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So those were, which is kind of what, and we talk a lot about on the show. Like, there's hype cycles that always happen, and that when you're the hype cycles, there's there's just hundreds and, and probably now thousands of companies that get created. Everybody's so excited, and then what happens that the outcomes typically there's going to be maybe like like five to maybe 10 different winners in these categories. And so for like the entrepreneur, you have like all of your mm -hmm. eggs in that basket. Um, and so, but for the venture capitalist, they have a, they have a, a portfolio of these companies. So it makes more sense for them to be um, investing in these hype cycle spaces, but the risk um, from an entrepreneur, and this is why I never would start another company that's in, in the hype cycle. So for me, getting into like generative AI, I would consider the hype cycle right now is yeah. just like would be crazy. Yeah. But as a VC, it mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. I, I think also like just thinking about that moment in time, um, you sort of had a same, a similar thing to what I've seen with crypto and Web three, and now with generative AI, where 
there's a little bit of this sort of like uh, seductive technologist navel gazing that happens where like, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you right. do it, and yet people do. And so, you know, with Uber, it was like they put a car on a map and that was like mind blowing. And so if you right. think about early ship, uh, breather managed by Q, there was sort of this impulse to leverage sort of newly available technologies to do a thing yeah. that was just, um, uh, it was impressive and kind of novel, but you know, I think right. there's, I think we all landed at a place of, is that actually solving a problem for the customer? And I right. think, is it uh, 10 times better? You know, a lot of people, um, you know, died on that hill in the on-demand craze, but I think the exact same thing is happening now with crypto and web three. I think it's likely to happen with generative AI because, yeah. you know, anytime technology is in search of a problem versus starting from first principles with a problem and applying technology smartly to solve it, um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't usually end well. Yeah, that actually reminds me of our, our last guest. So we had Laura from Shippo and she was talking about, so she's been at another company. Um, it's in, it's a shipping API and she's been in it for almost 10 years. And she was like, kind of jealous of seeing like the valuations of like people that have been around for one or two years. But like what she's been focused on is like, just like solving customer problems. And you don't get a lot of the limelight but those, if you look back, those are the businesses that typically are like the, the big, like it, it takes 10 years to build a really like great business. And, but it's hard for an entrepreneur as you look and see these rounds that, that, and I was part of this as well, ship, like we, we raised so much money in, in like a couple of years. Um, and it was all based on all hype. Um, and, um, but it, it is tough for entrepreneurs to, the, the ones that are just grinding day in, day out. Um, it's hard, but I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah. And I think also like, I think the grass is always greener. I think when you're in a business that long and the business is fundamentally working, you're solving a real problem for the customer, you have a creative unit economics, you're not, um, reliant on the hype cycle. There is yeah. just a calm and a tranquility and sort of like, uh, just a, a Zen to operating. That's like so different mm -hmm. than the frenetic like venture. I mean, all of us went through it to the extreme. Um, yeah. And I think all of us were, were good at it, um, you know, uh, to a point. Um, but that's like, I think the, the biggest learning I have from that is like, it's just like no way to live. And if you get out, it's by the skin of your teeth. And it's just like, you know, I would say the biggest thing that I uh, emphasize now to founders that I work with is like, you know, just because you can raise at this valuation and someone will do it just like through, you know, if, it, if there isn't like yeah. an integrity to the model, um, you're some borrowed time and especially given sort of the volatility of the market now, like that's just not, it's just not a smart bet. I'm hoping to be able to have a conversation about the M and A process. Sure. And, and yeah. because you, you, you did something that a part of me wishes I did, uh, which is, uh, get to know the people that we work better. And it sounded like it kind of happened organically with all y'all. And then fundamentally, uh, managed by Q sold it to WeWork. And I want to hear it from you. I know parts of the story, uh, but I'd be really curious about, I mean, first of all, there was an, this was an era where lots of companies were trying to be sold either deliberately or, or aggressively pursued by, um, the founder, Adam Newman. Right. And, and so one way or another, lots of deals were happening and he was ready to start a trillion dollar company and 
uh, there was a meaningful fallout. Keep in mind, I haven't watched the shows, so I don't know what oh, Jared come Leto. on, Julian. No, I'm serious. I really didn't. I don't need know. to watch the shows. Dan, no. have you watched the I, shows? I can't. Did you watch it, Dan? Yeah, um, I did, and it was, uh, you know, too, too close to home. <laughs> yeah. It, it was the yeah. best of all of them. The We Work, We Crashed was the best of all of them. I, maybe these. one day, you know, I, the, I but you're not... I, you, you will tell me in the story if you, if it turns out you're mentioned in the show, but the, I, what is, first of all, was that on purpose? Is that an outcome that you wanted? I, you know, I, did you initially think, you know, I'm going to build a $10 billion business or something like how, how did your thoughts change throughout the process and how did this go down tactically? Yeah. So I think, you know, nobody starts a company thinking that they want to get acquired. Um, but there are some outcomes that are better than others. And I think, you know, as we continued to go down the venture path and raise at higher valuations and sort of, you know, every time you raise the higher valuation, you set the bar much higher of what a, a good outcome is. And by doing that, you are narrowing the universe, you know, fundamentally of, of who is a good fit acquirer. And I think we got to a point where there was a pretty short list um, of candidates. And I think one of the things that we did well um, and part of it was sort of like by accident. I actually, I met Miguel um, on a trip that Scott Harrison put together with Charity Water. So I, Miguel and I met, you know, in the back of a Land Rover in Ethiopia and spent like a bunch of For time. the audience, who is M Miguel? Oh, Miguel, sorry, is, is uh, one of the co-founders of WeWork, Miguel McKelvey. He's like the number two. So we got to know each other on a personal level. Um, and, you know, he suggested that I meet with Adam and I had heard all kinds of stories and it wasn't really high on my list at the time, but eventually, you know, went in and spent some time with him. I think I had the experience that everyone has, which is like, he uh, is kind of a, a wild man, but also has some like, he has some real visionary juice and like had a real vision for what they were building and had a real logical narrative for where we fit in. And that was two plus years, maybe three years before the acquisition actually happened. But I think the, you know, to your question, Julian, um, around sort of M&A generally, it is my belief having been through it that, um, unless you were throwing off tons of cash, um, or you have some like truly novel technology, mm -hmm. um, companies are bought, they're not sold. And if you are okay. an entrepreneur and you think that M&A might be, um, might be a path that makes sense for you. And even if you don't, honestly, it's like a good insurance policy. Um, it's sort of your job as a CEO to think about, you know, what is the universe of potential acquirers and to build a relationship and understand like, how is my company the answer to their question? And something that right. I tell the founders that we work with now, like, you know, there will come a board meeting when a question is asked about the strategic lane that you play in. And if, your name and your company is not the first words out of everyone's mouth around the table. You haven't done your job. Um, and so it's like, you just really need to be proactive about, mm -hmm. you know, you just don't know how things are going to unfold. And, you know, optionality is key because demand is key to driving price in any situation. So you are so good. You're one of these founders. Sometimes people say to me, they're like, oh, Julian has like a mystique. And I am the person that looks up at the pyramid. And I think of Dan Turan as being extremely good mystique. Wow. Like <laughs> leagues above my mystique. I have yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Leagues, leagues above my mystique. And I acknowledge that I have it, but you have way more. And, oh. and so, so first of all, there is this element of mystique, but there's also this element of relationship. I looking back at it now, 
I wish I had developed those relationships. I was very independent. That I wouldn't, is, is that a mistake? It's certainly a path to be very independent, but I wish that I had the relationships. And looking back at it now, I wish that at every financing, I had said, let's do the financing, but let's also talk to acquirers at the same time. And that way, really? you think just, so? to ex just to explore the deal possibilities, right? Ugh. So that you're looking at it, you're saying, here's the financing that's happening. And we're also talking to these people and we want to understand what the landscape of deal possibilities is. Well, I and, think that that's also important, Julian, because yeah. um, M&A is incredibly idiosyncratic. It happens, a deal happens at a moment in time. And so mm -hmm. I, I think like, you know, Kevin, seeing your, your reaction to what a waste of time that sounds like, you Ooh, just yeah. don't know when that question is asked at the board meeting and everyone is going to be hot to trot to way overpay for an asset that they weren't even thinking about six months ago. And in six months from then they would have moved on. And so it's just like, do you, or don't you want to get the call, uh, and be in a position to make a choice? True. But yeah, my reaction would just be to basically be shopping yourself at, at the same time that you're fundraising. I think Dan, what, what you, you've done is like, I mean, when you were talking to WeWork, like it was over many years. So yeah. yeah. It, it was a good is a good forcing function because you know basically right. everyone knows that as soon as that deal is done the price goes up and so it's mm -hmm. like it's a good occasion to re-engage people um but i agree that like that was something that happened sort of in the normal course of business it's also like it's not that much time if you're like i'm gonna meet one strategic uh forever right mm -hmm. and so t tactically speaking what happens during the deal process are there any moments that all of a sudden it feels like that something is not going to happen or something is definitely going to happen that you remember what were the sort of like important points at which things changed in terms of being possible or not possible well with our deal in particular like it, it unfolded over the course of years um an offer was made a year before we signed a term sheet and it was insultingly low um and it was like you know at the time um, felt like a colossal waste of time and energy. I think like part of me knew that, you know, walking away from the, the table offended was, you know, a negotiating tactic. And like a year later, the price was double, but, um, that was definitely a time when it was clear it wasn't going to happen. And then, you know, a year later that set the expectation that I wasn't going to go through that process again. And so I think everyone on their side, um, you know, there were, there were, there were, uh, people that just wanted the deal done, but also there's people that like genuinely uh, care about their reputation and are good people and like, didn't want to waste my time, my management's time. So that's right. expectation on price. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I guess it was like February or so of 2019 that we, I think like, especially with an acquirer, um, like we work and any, and honestly for any business that's not being valued on fundamentals, you can be having like great conversations and be miles away on price. Um, because you know, there's a lot of intangibles being valued. Um, mm -hmm. And so until there's like material agreement on headline terms, and usually that's in a term sheet, um, like you just don't know, I think getting, you know, forcing the conversation on, on sort of the headline terms early is a good way to avoid wasting cycles. Cause I've talked right. to a lot of founders that get months down the path and then realize they're miles away on price. Yeah. yeah that's, yeah. that's my question. So for the ver very first time you got the 
first offer, how much of that, uh, how much time did it take for you and also any of your team to get that? You actually got a term sheet with the price? Yeah. Or maybe they just wrote it on a whiteboard and then I stormed out. I don't really remember, but um, <laughs> just imagine Adam Newman writing some number. Yeah. On, I was going to, I was about to say a number uh, on the whiteboard in big lettering, circling it and then saying something crazy. Yeah. And, and imagine me walking out um, and go straight to the airport because it was in San Francisco. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a lot of time. I think at that point, um, I kind of had some intuition that like it was the right investment in time to be making, even if it wasn't going to reach a deal at that point. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to also go back, like they were insanely capitalized and they also had right. like, main scale in the category. And like, it was, you know, my view was there was, is I, we were going to have some relationship, um, because it's a small, right. world. they were so big. Right. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. you know, increasingly, I mean, Julian, you will remember this, like there was a moment in time where like in, in New York city, every, you know, startup um, and any, like even beyond startups was either in a WeWork space or was using Q in their office. Like that was like, you know, probably yeah. 80, 90% of the market. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, it felt like a good investment in time. Um, but it was, it was a lot of time, but again, as a late stage company with the company, like functioning and operating, like I'm not right. sure higher leverage use of CEO time that then mm -hmm. even if it feels like you're getting the runaround, which I was. Right. So, you, so as an early stage company, so call it series a, when you're still actually doing a lot of the operating, like you taking what, however, whatever 40 to 60 hours is probably not a good, good use of time. No, I mean, unless there's like, unless the, you're, you are conscious that what you're actually aiming for is a strategic partnership and investment, like, you know, mm -hmm. right. Right. Fitness, like. But if the, yeah, if the, if, the, if it's only a success, if a deal happens at that stage, then like probably you're wasting time. It's interesting because yes. I remember at the time, I, I feel like that at some point there was like a, WeWork went to put money in a round. This was just somebody at, you know, on, on their BD team. It was never actually like the relationship with the founders at all, which I never have. And I, uh, I remember being like, uh, this gives you access to all of our numbers. And this feels like highly. Uh, a suspect or something and I declined it and I I'm wondering whether or not you would suggest that one of your you know uh, portfolio companies that you have at gutter would actually do something like this or whether it's actually a bad idea no I think you made the right call there because like what are mm -hmm. you what are you getting like a little bit of capital you're not even dealing yeah. that's I mean the other piece of advice I would give to anyone is M&A happens principle to principle if you are you right know, mm -hmm. in cases it's like, it's all based on relationship. If you are like the, in my view, there's like the type of M&A that like the CEO says we're doing this and everyone back solves for the rationale and the numbers. And then there's a type mm -hmm. of M&A that uh, the Corp Dev team does, which like there's a strategic plan and there's like target right. to go after you. And those ones often don't have very exciting prices unless it's like, you know, a I was going to say that. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. I mean, I think you made the right decision. I wouldn't, I don't think you, you don't want to be giving too much away. You want them to mm -hmm. the ring on it. You know, it, it, and this, sorry, this is, it just brings up so much for me because, you know, in New York at this time, and even sometimes these days, 
you get in maybe Silicon Valley has similar things, Kevin. Like, yeah. like I was just in New York last week and I spent some time with Sam Corcos and he had like a dinner of founders, right? Yep. And and, and and so the in <laughs> in thinking about this a thing like this, I was like, I was like, is this is is this time valuable? Or is it something where you look at it and you say, you know, I'm not going to waste my time going to an event and, and, and just like um, doing this kind of like shitty networking that ultimately has no value. And that's really kind of the question that I have is like, does this networking have value or is it something that I should skip? Because you specifically talk about Miguel and meeting him in like fucking like um, part of me, like Ecuador or whatever. Ethiopia, close. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you have to think about what value it does have. So there's two things like, um, you know, uh, Julian, I actually was invited to that dinner and if I'd known you were in town, I could have moved some things around, um, <laughs> but, uh, I think that kind of, so those relationships, like part of it's therapy, you know, having like close founder relationships yeah. that are going through the same shit as you. Yep. Yep. And for me, that was like the Casper founders, the Bark founders, like, you know, there's, a, 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 and you you included uh, Julian, um, like that has immense value for, for the mental health of a founder, because there's just nobody else that's going through it. Like Colin Powell, mm -hmm. famous leadership principle, command is lonely. The only people that, uh, ah. that understand it are those that are in command, uh, of, of, of their own things. And so I think that's really helpful. The other thing is you'll get signal from those people on the market that is that only they can see. And so I do think mm -hmm. that could be, you know, uh, yeah. They might tip you off to a strategic acquirer. They might, uh, you know, give you good intel on an investor that you think is interested, but like they know why they're actually never going to do the deal, but they're, they're right. not going to do that until they waste your time. So yeah. that type of stuff I think is valuable. Um, but it's, you know, it's obviously really dependent. Sorry, I got, I got to follow up with this because there's, there's these events, which is like, I'm going to a dinner, which kind of have like not that much time to waste, for example. And then the next level of these, which I'm sure to some degree, Kevin, you've received and everyone, we, he had dinner with Leonardo DiCaprio, so we know he's received them. It's <laughs> this next level of like, oh yeah, we're going to rent an island and Richard Branson will be there. And so will, and I want to say this with respect, douchebag A, douchebag B, douchebag C, and douchebag D. And you're, you're kind of looking at it and you're saying, and, and so like, so, sorry, Summit Series is a bad example. I've actually been to it. So I guess so I am douchebag A, so right? It's me. I am douchebag A. Hmm. And so like, it, it sounds as if what I'm hearing is that that is how these relationships happen because from principle to principle, that's the easiest way to get to the principle, so to speak. Is that what you're saying? Or is this too idiosyncratic to kind of like make a general statement about I mean, I generally wouldn't be getting on an airplane to attend, you know, um, therapy session or something. So, cause, so maybe, yeah. um, uh, so maybe that's extreme, but yeah, I do think also these dinners can be big time wasters. I think where I've, the they can most be. meaningful relationships that I've had are like intimate relationships that like you get to know people and under, and you know, they let their guard down and tell you all the fucked up stuff in their business. You do mm -hmm. the same. And then yep. you're like on a different level. And I think we, Julian, we got there over, you know, many years of, of, uh, operating sort of adjacent and like, yep. um, so if you're the type of person that's going to go to a dinner and like meet one or two people, and those are going to be like, you know, lifelong fruitful relationships, then great. But if you're going to go there and like, 
have a couple of drinks and be on your phone and then leave, then it's probably like you could sure. stay at the office. So wait, I, think, I think it, I think it wait, all comes down. So you are recommending the douchebag dinners in Ecuador or you're not? Just to be uh, clear. No, no, no air travel involved, I would say. Got it. That's the rule. Okay. I, I I think it all, well, it also depends on a lot of different things. I think it depends on your life stage. Um, I think on, and also like your network, right? If you have zero network, you should be doing everything you can do to create a network at all. So that may include some, some flight travel, um, or going to some, actually, I, I've met a, a, a really good contact to this day at one of those seven series events. Um, so I don't think that it's always time, but like for all of us here that those things are a waste of time um uh because we well we are already have really great networks but for some of the earlier on i i think i think some of those dinners can be helpful i've i've created a lot of my network around um portfolio other portfolio companies and so we have a common vc um that's been helpful um and just like getting together with them um some of the dinners i think that you need to be intentional like if you get invited, I'll, I'll, I'll say the name um, because I, I think that they just, uh, they're supposed to be dinner like next week, um, an SVB dinner. If you get invited to a founder's SVB right. dinner, if you're intentional on like trying to make some relationships and you follow up with people, then that's okay. But if you don't follow up with them, then it's just a waste of your time. And unless you just wanted to have a free mm-hmm. dinner and have some drinks, um, but you... And I think we've talked about this before about building networks. Uh, it's a, really a lot about the follow through and and so it much. takes time. Yeah. And um, so I think it just depends on where you are on like your network um, and what what types of things that you should go and attend. And some things can also be for fun. Like I know the lobby conference is is something that a lot of people go to. I don't I don't go to that um, um, anymore. Um, but I went there and I've had fun. Um, and there's a lot of founders. I don't think mm-hmm. I got much out of it, but it was a fun thing to do. Um, and that was before I was married and had kids. Um, right. and so, um, it made, it made sense. Um, so I think it depends on just kind of your life, life and career stages as, as well. And I, I will say like, just speaking personally, like as a, I think more introverted person who has about an hour or two of extroverted energy per day to spend, right. <laughs> and, and so. If you are such a person and you happen to be listening to this, you can find those places where it's strategically valuable. And then probably, but I'm actually like, I'm, I'm being facetious, but I'm also serious. It also helps to develop the mystique that we just talked about. If, if it is possible to develop such mystique and, and the reason is because it draws people to you. And so then you've got your your outward energy, which is like, I'm going to this dinner and I'm going to follow up really well. And you kind of treat it a little bit like a CRM to a degree. Yeah. And then you have the internal mystique, which is like, you're invited to podcasts or you, you know, you shoot your mouth off on the internet in some other way to draw people to you, which means that you don't have to be as extroverted at, uh, as you would be otherwise. Dan, what do you think about this? I mean, I think Kevin made a good point about stage of life also. Like we were all gentlemen, uh, at least in our thirties. Um, and at the time that, you know, I started managed by Q, I was 24, uh, and, you know, for most of the time was single, had like, you know, no commitments in life other than building a business, um, you know, sometimes to my own detriment. And it was like, I left it all in the field, like every 
waking moment um, of every day was about building that business. And so I went to everything. Mm -hmm. And I feel like on this go around, um, I kind of got that out of my system. And like, I want to have more of a life. Um, and I am better at prioritizing my time. So I, I do think, you know, in terms of like the audience uh, for younger founders without commitments, like you should, that's a competitive advantage. You should, you know, yes. doing things. But if you're at a different stage in life, you, you know, you got to prioritize. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I think Julian also, if you, the thing about those events, it's sort of like a layer within it. If you are introverted, I remember like you and I were wallflowers at a million events together. Um, and I was like drawn to <laughs> gauges in your ears and you looked like people I went to hardcore shows with growing up. So I feel like you, <laughs> right. You find, you find your tribe. <laughs> Mystique baby. Uh, <laughs> and so the, it, it. Now, looking at the portfolio companies that you have, you're still talking to entrepreneurs all the time. Um, do you see maybe like a common thread in the type of people who are able to, I noticed in New York at the time, we had so many companies that were, um, that were kind of like follow-on companies that had, saw, that had seen some, some element of hype or something that was like trendy that they, I could think of so many companies like this. I'm not even sure, like maybe like, in in the real estate space, there were just so many, and you were looking at it and you were saying, "Is this really going to exist?" The principles at the time were these aren't software companies, and I wouldn't find myself investing in them, for example, right? But then I would find myself proven to be like a fucking idiot because the next round they would have some kind of crazy valuation, and I would be like, "Am I dumb?" Like, which? And so how do you stay, how do you figure out what reality is at any given time and, and how to sort of align yourself with it and make sure you're not like askew with some crazy hype cycle a second time? How do you know when you're in it or not in it? Yeah. I mean, I think like one thing that I, one, I have a partner that I invest with, James Gettinger, who's an incredible thought partner and, and is, um, he is the least given man to the hype cycle you'll ever meet in your life. Um, and is like truly someone that thinks from first principles, um, and kind of from the ground up, no matter what it is, whether it's like, you know, looking through SVB's loan book or, um, you know, thinking about crypto or gender AI, like comes to a fundamental view. And I think like that is critical to anyone doing anything in life. There are so many people that spend the whole, well, spend their entire life just floating on the surface of what everyone else is saying and what everyone else is thinking mm -hmm. and don't actually understand the grand ground truth about anything. Um, and I think as an investor, one of the things that, um, you know, I'm grateful to have a little bit of like time to think and do differently is like really mm -hmm. coming up with a fundamental view on everything that we do. We invest from a like very long-term, uh, thesis driven approach, you know, from a problem space, we're looking at the biggest problems facing the United States. So affordability of healthcare, education, and housing, economic mobility, and climate change. If you believe in sort of the Warren Buffett, uh, never bet against the United States, then you believe that we absolutely have to solve all three of those in our lifetime or we are fucked, mm -hmm. right? Like that's a fundamental belief. And then when it comes to like the actual businesses, um, business models are inescapable. And I think at managed by Q, well, I didn't really know much about business when we started out, we kind of mm -hmm. iterated through every business model in the book until we found a good one, um, yeah. and burned a lot of capital doing it. And I think. You know, just thinking through business models from first principles and sort of the inescapable gravity of the model, um, that combined with like investing in, like in 
real problems and long, things that we think will take a decade to solve, I think cuts away a lot of the noise. And I think like the biggest failure mode is, um, you know, when you combine uh, uh, technologists navel gazing with uh, speculators enthusiasm, which is like what happened huh. with a lot of crypto and Web3 is happening now with generative AI. It's um, mm -hmm. technologists that are really, really excited about the technology and speculators that don't understand it. Yep. That's a good combination of lenses. Because if you just have the speculators, they'll speculate about existing things. But if you combine that with a set of people that just as a group that have occasionally created $100 billion businesses, even like one out of 1 million times, they, yeah, it's, you know, as, as you're describing what's going on, it kind of makes me realize like every little while you'll get a Mark Andreessen and he'll just say some shit. And that will, it'll be like software eats the world. And then everyone will just take that and you'll have a bunch of people with capital that will, that will push that in a certain direction and, and it'll lose the underlying uh, connection to the financial model, as you're saying, at which point everyone will say, but, but I, I guess the, the conclusion is like this time it's different or something, which it ultimately, it sounds like never is, especially since we're in the middle of this Silicon Valley bank thing, uh, things just happen in cycles, I suppose, I suppose. Yeah. And I think like in the, in the, but to my previous point over the long arc of time, like you just can't escape like the reality of the business model It either generates cash flow long-term or it doesn't. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I, I'd love to ask you, Dan, why, why you, you chose, um, after, um, selling managed by Q and, and you were at WeWork, um, for a period after why you decided to go the, the VC route instead of starting another, another, another company. Um, yeah, honestly, um, if you had asked me, you know, two years ago, three years ago, if I'd be doing this, I would have said like categorically, no, it was not, you know, <laughs> something that I planned on. Um, basically what happened was, you know, we sold to WeWork six months later, the company failed to go public twice. I was overseeing corporate development and ventures, which was meetup conductor, Flatiron school, all the non-core businesses, um, sort of. Uh, over the course of a weekend, it became clear that they needed to divest themselves of everything I was overseeing. Um, right. and, and, uh, consequently it made sense to divest themselves of me as well. Um, and so I found myself, you know, in the, in the, and the thing that I think is interesting is all of that happened before anyone had heard the word COVID. It was like literally a month before, um, you know, wow, that is weird. Right. Um, mm. so. I found myself unemployed for the first time since I was 14, um, and stuck in my apartment and I had made, um, a, a number of angel investments, uh, including, uh, in both of your companies, uh, yeah. with my yeah. partner James and I had time on my hands and like, I'm a builder by nature and like, I like being helpful. So I started reaching out to some of the founders, particularly people who were in New York, um, particularly like mission driven founders that didn't have great networks in tech, didn't have like the the pedigree team where I felt like I could help move the needle. And I got a couple reps in of sort of doing kind of early stage founder coaching combined with recruiting some of my best people. Like the happy accident of WeWork's implosion was, um, every single person that I had hired over the course of five years, um, right. either left or was fired. And so they were available. And so right, if you right. look at companies in our portfolio, like Opus and Bicky, 
both of those companies, I helped to recruit in um, two co-founders that had worked for me for, you know, four plus years and are just like mm, excellent right. operators. We know how to work together. And so it was sort of this beautiful synthesis of helping mission-driven founders achieve their goals, um, helping my people reach the next level in their career, um, and then being able to be sort of involved in a capacity that made sense for me at the time, because I wasn't really trying to jump back into to operating. I didn't really want to manage anyone after, you know, <laughs> many, many. <laughs> uh, so basically did that for a year and a half. And then um, what we realized was, you know, it was working. The companies were inflecting and we were introducing them to our friends who yeah. had seat funds and they were taking all the economics. And, you know, that didn't make a lot of sense for us either. So right. then we went out to raise the first fund. Um, and honestly, like, it's funny when you said in the beginning, like, we don't have venture capitals on. My, the way I feel <laughs> that I'm building like 13 companies at the same time with people that I love working with and taking like big right. shots on goal at big problems, then it's a blast. Um, so it doesn't, yeah, I'm certainly not like um, kicking back playing the ponies. It's like feels very full on operational, um, mm -hmm. doing a lot of the same things I'd be doing as a CEO. Is being in New York useful? Like, like, um, uh, I, what, I guess I, the meta question I, I want to ask is, um, is it useful to be in a big city? Uh, is New York at the time, this was the, keep in mind, this was when New York was really happening for, 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 for I was going to say for Silicon Valley, for tech is what I mean. Like Datadog had not yet gone public maybe, but was a really big thing. The trade desk, which I think is a New York company that Jerry invested in, uh, it, it, uh those were companies that are out in New York that were becoming really meaningful. And so you had your first set of tech companies that were quote unquote real. And, and it started to look like it was a real ecosystem. Has it developed? Did it, it implode? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's been, New York has been, everyone just like, was just like dying to shit on New York at the beginning of the pandemic. And, yeah. uh, it has been the biggest beneficiary because, you know, where do people want to be? Like they want to be in fucking New York city. If you can work from anywhere, it turns out mm -hmm. like you don't move to like the woods, you move to New York city. And so I think like, um, it was sort of a very, uh, uh, self-interested point of view from a very small set of people in the venture world that like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, people are going to move to tax haven, whatever, like young talented people want to be in New York city. Like that's, that has been true. Or San Francisco. Yeah. Maybe that for most of New York. <laughs> I mean, the amount of people that are moving from San Francisco to work remote for San Francisco companies from New York, it's like, um, it's honestly a little bit scary to me, like the, the sheer volume of tech that's coming here now, it's very different mm -hmm. than it used to be. New York definitely is, is a much bigger tech, um, focused, uh, city than it ever has been before. Yeah. Which, you know, makes me anxious. Um, like, you know, it was, <laughs> it was nice to be, um, not the tech hub because when you go to dinner, people work in fashion or art or media or finance right. and like right. you know, yep. interesting and vibrant and it keeps you hungry because nobody gives yeah. a tip about your tech company. Um, yeah. that's, you know, maybe changing, but yeah, I mean, New York is remains, uh, pretty lit on the tech front. I think like we've got a nice thing going here. Um, we have an office on canal street where we've got seven companies in a, in the portfolio that are represented there. So they're either based there or they're based in places like, um, Portland, Maine, or, um, uh, really anywhere. And their New yep. York contingents work with us. And so there's a nice little built-in community. It's a lot of people 
across the companies that work together managed by Q. So people know each other, support each other. It's super fun. It's mm -hmm. actually the, the office is the original BarkBox office, which was the pre-hype office, which oh, was cool. my office when I started managed by Q and they were the first managed by Q customer. So I'm literally sitting at the same desk I was at 10 years ago. Hmm. I'd love to ask in the spirit of like the commonalities between the three of us, um, if we can share some knowledge of like what it was like to run like and kind of a, a people, uh, business, but also mm. a tech company, if we yeah. have any learnings or stories or anything to share, given like today that these, these types of companies just are not getting funded. Um, yeah. what, what are some, what are some stories you guys got? Dan had 400 people, I think something, and like 350 of them were cleaners, if I remember correctly. So you go first. Well, we have like a thousand at the peak. Um, and then wow. this model evolved to um, a managed marketplace. So then we worked with a lot of like large established one mop and pop um, uh, facility companies. So we didn't, toward the end, we didn't have all of the, the service providers uh, as part of the company. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's wonderful for a lot of reasons um, because you're interfacing with, you know, a much more diverse cast of characters. And I don't mean um, you know, just their complexion, but also just like the points of view, the lived experience. And, um, right. that was, that was a real draw for people to work on products and engineering and design and managed by Q because mm -hmm. we were dealing with people that, um, had a totally different perspective. Um, and I think we had a pride around building tools for people that, you know, uh, swung a hammer or a mop for a living. Um, you know, we did something that to this day, um, is one of the things I'm most proud of is we gave. Uh, equity to uh, hundreds of cleaners and handymen. And when we sold, um, cool. uh, a number of them made life-changing wealth. Like that was um, really amazing. And our sponsor cool. always got all cash on the sale. Um, but it was also really challenging because when you have a thousand people in other people's offices overnight and these people make, um, you know, low wages and like they do all kinds of stupid shit. And like, uh, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, that makes for some very challenging conversation with the, uh, with your customers. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the whole, it was a great experience. I think, um, it's really hard to manage culture when you have just very different, you know, uh, employee populations. But I mm -hmm. think one, one thing that we also did well was try to create pathways so that there was always a legible way to enter the cleaner, the company as a cleaner and. Yeah. Up like in you know in in one case a software engineer in other cases in operations management and like mm -hmm. I think it's important to not you know try your best to have legible pathways through the organization so that of course it like a two class system which I think it often ends up being right Julian yeah. what do you got uh, you've heard well, about all the, the drugs that have, uh, that people did in breathers so first of all everyone yeah. is always asking me about this and Dan I don't know if you and I have ever talked about it but I deliberately kept those stories away from me but that said I, I will I will tell you the following <laughs> generalized <laughs> anecdote I was sitting at not Buvet what's the name of that fucking French place at um, Frenchette god that uh, on Prince Where what is it called or again Balthazar yeah 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 and yeah Balthazar and I was sitting there with like some hotel operator one time and I said, and I was trying to compare like, like when people rent rooms, like how gross is it really? And I was comparing, I we probably had a hundred something breather spaces at the time. So probably 25 cleaners in New York. At the time we were the biggest Uber 
rush. It was when, when Uber would, was starting to send objects here and there in Manhattan, we were the biggest user of it for, I want to say like a year or something. Right. And, uh, and so I asked the dude, I said, Hey, you know, an average hotel, like how often does something gross happen? And, and he said, what, like average hotel, 300 rooms. I said, yeah, sure. 300 rooms. And he says, I don't know, once a day. And I'm like, once a day. Okay. So like, what kind of gross are we talking about? And he says, like a biohazard. <laughs> and I was like, okay, oh, okay. So we're doing better than that. And so that was comforting to me, but, but it, I think, you know, it's, I guess, I guess what I learned and what you learn to probably to a degree inside of cleaning and offices, right. Which is more strictly speaking, speaking what Dan did on that side, that it's like when, when people encounter and especially anonymously encounter like the physical world and, and like, like anything crazy can happen. And it's just like, it's, I, I will say I'm honored by the people that worked at Breather and that worked as, as things like cleaners and that would show up after some like rich tech dude had like blasted a room because he had done too much Coke or something. You know, I think, no I, I don't know that that type of thing happened, but it almost <laughs> certainly did. Right. And so if something like that would happen and somebody shows up right, and they have to deal with it and they yeah. call another cleaner because they can't do it alone. Right. And so now you've got three people trying to set up a room and the next booking is in an hour. Right. Okay. So you have essentially these people of a certain status, let's call it either maybe with corporate credit cards or not, that are essentially like just demolishing your ability to try and create a business. Yeah. And, and so it was just a wild time where you could use that type of wild experimental business stuff to create a tech company that was valued at like a 50 X revenues at the, the height of it probably. Right. And so that's never going to happen again. No, but it was awesome. It was yeah. really, really awesome. awesome the, for you. It, 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 the, the business being super <laughs> off the wall, like now my business is so much more mainstream and like mainstream and normal Software. 90% margins. Like it's <laughs> like, you know, uh, the idea of risk is we were, we were saying the other day, oh, let's, let's like subsidize all of someone's, um, uh, 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 transaction fees through Stripe because people that our customers hate paying that 3% transaction fee. Right. And I was like, let's just subsidize that. And the people over on the product side are like, oh my God, that's risky. I was like, you don't know risk. You don't know risk, what right. risk really <laughs> looked like compared to people that dealt with atoms during that phase. So Kevin, I'm sure you have some similar sort of feeling. Go for it. Yeah, I, I yeah, we manage hundreds of employees. I think we had at, at the, the peak, it was like 300 employees across five different warehouses. And we had people in warehouses and also people picking up stuff, a chip. And yeah, we'd get anything from like discrimination, like within like the warehouses um, yeah. to people um, doing extremely inappropriate things to customers. Um, it just, uh, everything you can name it, it is really hard. And the thought now that you could actually scale, like if you think of like a venture return, it's your revenue has to go ex exponential. It has to, right? Like yeah. they get a true venture return. And that's what all of our, um, investors thought they all thought our, our businesses and the thought that you can grow like an employee base like that exponentially 
is just mm-hmm. it just doesn't compute to me anymore it's yeah. just like you just you just can't do that mm-hmm. um and yeah there's just so many things that go wrong and you're exactly I, I i completely agree with you julian like the risks that we we now take on being a pure software and a marketplace business yeah. we actually do have people on the other side of that of, of our marketplace but we don't deal with it um but it's just completely different but i i i don't uh believe dan going back to your your business model piece i don't believe that venture belongs in like scaling up tons of buildings or people or whatever it's just it gets to a point where you're just not able to manage quality like or like you just can't continue growing and getting people or or things just so the service deteriorates it's just it's just a fucking mess um and i didn't deal with a lot of the hands-on i know julian you, you mentioned you're just like to your your ops people you're like don't don't tell me what actually happens i don't want to deal with with it um, I did have some some things that happened, and we actually had to to pay off some stuff from customers from going public from some of the stuff that actually yeah, happened. Like, just to be clear, I, I can't, I, I can't I, say what it is. I just want to say this specifically, and I will not get more detailed than this. There are there are prominent people, uh, who 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 you probably have met or know about that have been permanently banned from our from from breathers and and that were and and, <laughs> and when they were banned and we had to we had to call them and give them an explanation right, right. as to why they were banned so it is it is really wild out there but it's um it's just that type of thing is simply not possible but one, one thing i'm curious about is is uh dan do you believe that it is still possible for atoms to intersect with bits and to create a venture type outcome specifically in real estate or do you believe that real estate is this weird exception because there are people on both sides i'm really curious as, as to whether you believe a real estate business that if that specifically that touches the square feet mm-hmm. whether whether an outcome is possible or not well i mean i think you know depending on when you invested in we work you know it was you know it's still uh a public company, it's obviously gotten pretty beaten up, but I think I would push back a little bit that the types of businesses that we all started, like they all had their issues to be sure. Um, but I do think that you can achieve venture scale returns in a well-executed business that has, you know, a logistical component or an operational component. DoorDash, Uber, yeah, good examples. Airbnb did that, but, but, um, I do think it's still, it's still doable. I think your point, Kevin, is well taken, which is the pace of scaling of human systems is just um, different, forgetting the cost for a second, than the pace of scaling of software. And so that's a limiting factor. But I do think like there's different models, like, you know, franchising being one that can yep. make, um, you know, more possible. So I, you know, back to like the first principles thing, I really try hard to, to stay away from categorization of like these types of businesses will never be venture. That's true. We that's great. That's good. It really just depends on like, the specific situation and like, you know, how it's capitalized. I think on real estate, like there's just so much in flux right now with, with the built world. Um, I mean, I think the most interesting thing is, um, I'm doing like a lot of research on, um, office to, to, to apartment conversions. Um, I don't, I think just given sort of like the, the regulatory nature and the, um, capital intensivity of the actual like retrofits. Um, it's hard to see, a, you know, a venture business sort of on the, 
Um, but there are also like opco propco models that can work. So I don't know. It's hard to generalize. It is. It is hard. And there are obviously are exceptions. I think like the marketplace, like the, um, it's, it's, it's actually amazing to see the execution of a company like DoorDash. Like I met, like they still get all, all of the issues when things are not delivered or there was somebody rude that, that answered a door or something. They all get that, that to their customer service team. Speaking specifically to DoorDash. Yeah. It is known from a, from the get-go, YC took this company on, right? And, and by the way, when it was probably controversial, not controversial, but when it was like maybe to a certain degree, um, contrarian to do so in the sense that the category was considered to be done kind of, especially in, in lots of cities like New York, where Rumba had like totally taken a dominant yeah. position. It was difficult to get any, get any, um, uh, wedge in, but the DoorDash founders were unusually strong on their numbers. They yes. understood their numbers yes. the way that yes. to, and my, my memory of the best company that understands their numbers from Silicon Valley that made a thing that was with, with not a lot of room for, uh, cost, additional cost work is wish like wish to me is the company yep. where they're like, holy fuck, how did they, how is it possible that they scaled this thing when they're selling things, uh, essentially straight out of a, a, a warehouse in China kind of thing. And, and with almost no margin on top of the object, so like DoorDash had, the founders had that level of, uh, I want to say, uh, sophistication on the numbers side. And that is really different from how I knew my business. I definitely did not know my business to that degree. And Kevin, I don't know, but I'm going to argue that you didn't either. And most on-demand founders didn't at all. Yeah, I definitely not to the degree of DoorDash. I, I, I did not, I was more, I was more focused on the actual product and the product experience. And then we, for, for us, it was just, we just didn't have the frequency of use. That's why we didn't ultimately make it. Um, and so, um, yeah, but it, it is amazing what like the DoorDash found, founders have, have been able to accomplish and how much they're valued at right now too. Like it's, Dan, it's in short, it sounds like you're, you, you're not ready to make sort of a categorical case of software can't eat the world somewhere and you still believe that it's kind of possible wherever wherever it happens yeah i think it really depends on the model and also like there's just like different structures that can accomplish you know a venture scale return for um the right. venture the piece of the business and that can be done through franchises it can be done through um yep. edge marketplace it can be done through an opco propco model so there's different capital structures that I think can allow a thing, you know, the, the software driven, fundamentally scalable thing to be distinct from the aspects that just like software can't move any faster. Yeah, that's true. That's great. Dan, awesome. thanks for taking the time to chat Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. And Thank thanks you. everybody for listening. All right, All guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Founders Podcast, talking tech news, the show is a must, not some billionaire trying to sell you their book, we're coming from a real place, plenty ups and downs, got some insights, join the discussion now, we being honest and raw, giving you real talk, we've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more, the second time Founders Podcast, more building, less talk.